With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here, and thanks for getting your agriculture news with me today. Walnut growers are hard hit by crop damage, plummeting prices. California walnut farmers are tearing out older trees and less desirable varieties as walnut prices have plummeted well below the cost of production. The California Walnut Commission estimates that the 2022 crop suffered $1 billion in damages after the devastating heat wave in September cooked walnuts on trees in a critical time in the growing cycle. Later, ill-timed rains led to mold problems. As much as 30 to 40 percent of the walnut volume was impacted, resulting in disaster declarations for growers in several counties. That was today's California Farm Bureau Food and Farm News Report. And now let's get into our show headlines. The flexibility within the produce safety rule. In efforts to be proactive when it comes to produce safety, Don Stuckel with the Produce Safety Alliance says the produce safety rule was crafted with vague terminology to tailor to each produce group and commodity. In addition to that proactive stance and, and looking to prevent contamination instead of address contamination, there's also what they refer to as a systems approach. And the rule, well, you can just imagine because we all know that California grows so many different types of fruits and vegetables and nuts that every one of them has a different set of conditions under which the, the, the crop is grown. So the produce safety rule is written to be very flexible. It uses words like as necessary, when appropriate. What that means is that every commodity is going to have slightly different ways of addressing in a systems-based approach what is acceptable, what is necessary, what is appropriate. For more information on the Produce Safety Alliance and the Produce Safety Rule, you can visit cows.cornell.edu backslash Produce Safety Alliance. And now here's Brian German with back-to-back agricultural reports. There were several cuts to ag incentive programs made in Governor Newsom's budget proposal. Western Ag Processors President Roger Isom explained just how critical incentives are for meeting state requirements. The incentive part of it, which has helped us greatly on a lot of aspects, especially like with tractors for ag or or even trucks and other equipment, right now with this latest budget and understanding that this is a deficit year, those budgets are reduced. And in fact, farmer funding, which has been the one that ag's been going to now for four or five years, is completely zeroed out. There is no farmer funding in the governor's proposed January budget. So, you know, we're already going to work. We're going to try to find out if we can, if there's any possibility at all to get that reinstated. We were looking at increasing it this year because we're trying to meet the state's demands and the state's goals. We can't get there without incentive funding, period, end of story. So we need the state to help us. If you're going to have these goals in this fast a time frame where we're replacing equipment before the end of its useful life, you're asking us to eat some of that, you're going to have to help us. Plain and simple. And so we're going to have to see if they're going to step up and do that or more people are going to go out of business, which results in more people losing their jobs. And then what is the state going to do? Farm Foundation is still accepting nominations for two next generation programs. Nominations for the Young Farmer Accelerator and the Young Agri-Food Leaders programs will be accepted until February 8th. Each of the programs began in 2020 and provide a year-long series of interactive learning and networking experiences. The Young Agri-Food Leaders Program seeks to actively engage emerging leaders between the ages of 25 and 40 to help them gain a deeper understanding of the food and agriculture value chain. 
The Young Farmer Accelerator program is focused on educating farmers between the ages of 21 and 40 on a wide variety of agriculture, agribusiness, and government issues. Participants in the programs are sponsored to attend events, engage in virtual conversations, and participate in exclusive learning opportunities. More information on the programs is available at farmfoundation.org. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. In today's National Spotlight, we're at the Cattle Industry Convention, where I'm talking with Kent Backus, who is the National Cattlemen's Beef Association Executive Director of Government Affairs. We're going to discuss international trade. Um, we've had some good numbers in the past recently with international trade. Tell me a little bit about what's going on now. So there's strong global demand for, for beef, and especially U.S. beef. We produce you know, a high-quality grain-finished product that's sought out, especially in a lot of Asian markets. Keep in mind, most of the world produces grass-finished or, or lean beef, and so we're really competing for a higher end of the marketplace, a much higher-valued segment of the marketplace. Um, so in countries like Korea, Japan, China, Taiwan, Philippines, there's very, very strong demand for beef, and especially with uh, African swine fever continuing to just decimate uh, their swine herds there, there's protein shortages. So there's a lot of opportunities there for us. Uh, We've tried to develop those markets and really earn the trust of those consumers, but we didn't really have access into them until we had trade agreements. And so by having the Korea free trade agreement, we saw a 40% tariff uh, pulled back. Uh, we've now developed that into a two and a half billion dollar market, which was once you know just a, a few uh, hundred million, not not much at all. It was kind of a blip on the radar. Now it's our biggest export market. We're actually the largest import source in the Korean market as well. With Japan, that's another two billion dollar market for us. Uh, we were able to get. Uh, on a level playing field as far as tariffs go with the Japan agreement that uh, was uh, negotiated under the Trump administration. Uh, so because of that, we've been able to capitalize on a lot of that demand in Japan, even through COVID. Uh, and when you look at China, we haven't even scratched the surface yet. And now we have access to that market and, and it's quickly becoming one of our biggest export markets. So there's a lot of opportunity ahead of us. And it's important that any new agreements that we have continue to follow that path of being science-based and market-based. We have to identify tariffs and all those extra taxes that our consumers will pay. We have to remove those to make our product more competitive. And we have to make sure that that all of the, the animal health and food safety regulations are actually based on science. What we've started to see is the emergence of some subjective terms Uh, A lot of climate and animal welfare provisions that are popping up in Europe and in other parts of the world. 
that really don't have a basis in science. And because of that, they're going to be kind of the next generation of trade restrictions, uh, whether it's in the name of, of deforestation or sustainability or other things. You can't just create these these barriers without a justification. And so we're going to continue to engage with the U.S. government to make sure that any agreements moving forward continue to be based on science. Aside from that, is there anything else that you would like to see in oncoming trade agreements? Well, I know that, you know, the Biden administration is kind of, uh, they're, they're trying to rename agreements and they're no longer trade agreements, they're frameworks or initiatives, whatever you want to call it. We're going to need market access to be part of this. We need to remove these tariff barriers. And in the Indo-Pacific, there's a lot of opportunities there. We still face 40 and 50% tariffs in some of these markets. There's no justification for keeping those. They're just protectionist measures. And so if we, if we start to kind of lower the expectations, then all of our trade partners are going to do the same. They're going to want to revisit the agreements we have. That places cattle producers specifically at a disadvantage. Um, if we also start making exceptions on science, and if we look the other way for one country and not the other, then that creates even more issues and more disruptions. And so that's the last thing we need. That's today's National Spotlight. Reporting from the Cattle Industry Convention and Trade Show in New Orleans, I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now for today's Livestock Report, here's Randall Wiseman. Well, in today's Livestock News, the U.S. Department of Agriculture did release their annual cattle inventory report, and it shows as of January 1st, all cattle and calves in the U.S. were at 89.3 million head. That's 3% below the 92.1 million head found on January 1 of 2022. All cows and heifers that have calved were at 38.3 million head. That's 3% below last year. Beef cows at 28.9 million head were down 4%. Milk cows at 9.4 million head were up slightly from the previous year. But according to a story from Gary Crawford, there were no real surprises in this report as the beef herd does continue to shrink. The new twice-yearly USDA cattle inventory report pegs the total number of cattle and calves in the inventory on January 1st at 89.3 million head. The smallest uh, inventory number since 2015. USDA livestock analyst Shale Shagam, who says for the beef side of things, just about every number down from a year ago. The number of beef cows, 28.9 million head. That's down 4%. Beef replacement heifers, down 6%. And so... From a producer standpoint, apparently they are still very worried about the availability of forage. And Chagam says if supplies of water and pasture and feed all continue to be tight as they are now, we will continue to see relatively uh, little optimism on the part of some producers in terms of expanding. And even if drought conditions ease and producer optimism rises, we won't, of course, see the actual results of any expansion until well into 2025. Meanwhile, cattle prices expected to keep climbing. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Thanks, Gary. And USDA livestock analyst Shale Shagum says the numbers in this cattle inventory report does point to higher prices at every level of the beef chain. The number of calves outside feedlots is down about 2.8% from where you were a year ago. And so feedlot operators are going to have to bid higher to get those cattle into, into, into feedlots. And likewise, as those smaller number of, of animals manifest themselves in market-ready cattle, yeah, you know, after they've been placed and fed out, uh, you know, packers are going to have to pay higher prices for the for the finished animals. 
Now, the January cattle on feed report did note that the number of cattle and calves on feed for the slaughter market in the U.S. was at 14.2 million head on January 1st. That's down 4% from January 1 of the year before. But again, the overall report does show the number of cattle and calves in the U.S. as of January 1st is down 3% from January 1 of last year. And U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai this week announced the second dispute settlement panel under the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement regarding Canada's dairy tariff rate quota allocation measures. The U.S. is challenging Canada's revised dairy TRQ allocation measures that use a market share approach for determining TRQ allocations. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Today's show is sponsored by the makers of All Grow Compost. It's the perfect amendment for improving your soil's water holding capacity. You can contact your soil health specialist, Tom Fantosi, at 209-312-4016. Sinagro, your partner for a cleaner, greener world. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. A study sheds light on grazing practices around the nation. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. Data published Monday by USDA's Economic Research Service shows rotational grazing adoption varies by region. Rotational grazing is a management practice in which livestock are cycled through multiple fenced grazing areas to manage forage production, forage quality, animal health, and environmental quality. In a recent study, USDA researchers found the highest rate of total rotational grazing adoption at 49% of operations in the Northern Plains and Western Corn Belt region. The lowest participation level at 25% were operations in the Southern Plains region. Basic rotational grazing was more common than intensive rotational grazing in all but one region. USDA says the exception was the Appalachian region, where 25% of cow-calf operations used intensive rotational grazing and 22% used basic rotational grazing. I'm Sabrina Halverson, Fragnet West. This is the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. It's not entirely inaccurate to characterize the U.S. as having little by way of general law prohibiting unfair trading practices, but an attempt was made a century ago to provide more power to farmers selling ag commodities. The Capper-Volstead Act provides an exemption from antitrust law to farm cooperatives with respect to agreements among members related to collectively processing, preparing for market, handling, and marketing of agricultural products. In some contexts, farmers are not able to organize as a bargaining cooperative. Poultry growers are an example. They provide housing for the birds that an integrator owns and provides the feed and medicine for. Because poultry farmers are not engaged in collective production, they cannot engage in collective action. To address this gap, as well as provide some protection for any other group of farmers to engage in collective action, Congress adopted an Unfair Trade Practices Act for farmers. The statute bars discrimination against any farmer based on membership in an association of producers, including both cooperatives and other associations dedicated to promoting the common interest and general welfare of agricultural products. 
American agriculture provides an example of the efforts to provide protection against unfair trading practices. It also illustrates the limited effectiveness of those efforts. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. In dairy barns across the country, dairy operators year after year after year have managed to boost production and get more milk out of each cow, sometimes to the detriment of the prices they get for that milk. And so it is for milk and for most dairy products at the moment. Prices have started to decline and quicker than, than we had expected. Uh-oh, USDA Outlook Board Chairman Mark Chekanowski says it's a combination of continued increases in milk and dairy product production, plus... Weak demand and, and pretty strong international competition, and really a, kind of across the board for all of the main product categories, cheese, butter, nonfat, dry milk, dry whey, we reduced all of those uh, product price forecasts. Reduced them compared to what was being forecast a month ago. So now all those products are expected to sell for less this year than last. So for all of 2023 compared to 22, USDA is now projecting U.S. milk output will continue to grow, not by a lot, but by just under 2.5 billion pounds, less than 1%, but it is still growth. Meanwhile, the average all-milk price is going to go the opposite way, down, not up. The all-milk price, which of course is what drives the uh, Dairy Margin Protection Program, uh, at least the price part of that program, the all-milk price we reduced a dollar ten cents per hundred weight. Reduced the forecast by that much compared to what was being projected a month ago. The new USDA all-milk price is now expected to average for this year twenty-one dollars and sixty cents per hundred weight, which would be almost four dollars a hundred weight, or about fifteen percent below 2022's average price. So with that reduction in milk price and really no corresponding reduction in the price of feed, you know, if anything, maybe some uh, upward pressure that potentially will squeeze those margins to the point where the uh, dairy program could start to pay out. The last payout was back in September, so if you signed up for USDA's dairy margin coverage, you may be very happy you did. USDA also has just announced some additional help for producers, a second round of payments in the Pandemic Market Volatility Assistance Program, and a new Organic Dairy Marketing Assistance Program, both designed mainly to help small and mid-size producers. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Over the years, you've brought opioids into your home. They helped when you were in pain, and you held on to them just in case. But holding on to opioids puts your family at risk. Learn more at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. Mike Newland. Director of Agriculture Business Development at the Propane Education and Research Council. You got it, Mike. So you're out talking with farm broadcasters like myself, and what are you talking with them about today? 
Well, a lot of folks are interested in a couple of main questions, supply, price questions for our fuel. Uh, so I'll hit the easy ones first. So we're in a great spot on supply. We tend to track everything versus a five-year average as far as inventory goes. We're well within that five-year window, so we are in a good spot. The big variable within the ag space comes from the Midwest, and that's the grain drying market. We had a very normal year for grain drying here in the Midwest on corn. So corn's the big uh, variable for us here in the Midwest, and that was a very normal. So pricing, we're in a good spot. We love talking about pricing right now. We tend to track our fuel versus crude oil versus diesel versus gasoline. We're always at a discount to those. We're at a very big discount right now to those. So uh, the big energy run-up in price has not impacted our fuel price too much. And we're, uh, we're in a really good spot. So we've got a great message to tell. Our fuel's abundant, meaning we've got a lot of it. We export about 60% of the available propane today. Our goal and our job at PERC is to find out, can we find new uses and uses for that? So that's what we do. That's why we're here and promoting our message. And uh, let's speak a little bit to that message for our folks in California. Go ahead and tell me why it's beneficial that they may take up some of your resources. Absolutely. So I think propane should dominate the California market. We've got some ways to go there. When I start thinking farm applications in California, my brain immediately goes to irrigation. Irrigation, especially on some of the crops in California, are very time sensitive and you have to irrigate when that crop needs it. You're growing a lot of high value crops. It's imperative that those get watered on time. Propane allows you to do that. You're not dependent upon the grid being up. Uh, unfortunately, you guys do have some issues and um, variability within your electric grid. Propane irrigation takes all those out of control, puts those back in your control at the farm gate level. So I think that's first and foremost. Second, we to hit on it a little bit, is power. We've got tremendous opportunities and equipment for power generation. If you've got large demand on your farm, we do a number of vineyards, we do a lot of other unique things in California. Propane power is incredibly clean, it's affordable when you compare it to the California grid. So I think it's a great opportunity. If you're not interested in prime power, we also do have backup power solutions for any size operation. So those are the things that my brain immediately goes to. In addition to that, our council does approve a incentive program, propane farm incentive program. It gives money back to anybody that's looking to expand and buy new propane powered equipment. You can find out all the details on that at propane.com slash farm incentive. Uh, that check comes right to you as a farmer uh, once you purchase the equipment. Couple quick application processes, but a very easy process for you to get an incentive from our industry back to you for trying our fuel. And Michael, is there anything else that you might like to add that might intrigue our listeners today in California to maybe utilize propane? I think if you're interested, just remember in new equipment, if you're looking to expand, add equipment, chances are you can do it with propane. Uh, we're Like I said, we're at a big historic discount to other fuels in the marketplace today. Our fuel is naturally clean. What that means for us is we can meet your California emissions right now, right out of the gate without any extra after treatment type situations. So 
I encourage folks to go to our webpage, propane.com agriculture. That'll show all the technologies, all the equipment that's available. We've got links on there to all the OEM manufacturers, the original equipment manufacturers. So you can uh, explore on your own, and we're here to answer any questions that you've got. You got it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Absolutely. Thank you. And now, it's tax time with classic comedians Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Well, Costello, here's the income tax accountant my brother recommended. Now, let's go in and see him. Aha, gentlemen! Mr. Costello here wants you to help him with his income tax. Fine, fine. Now, Mr. Costello, how much money did you make last year? Well, I... Speak right up, young man. Speak right up. All this information is confidential. Well, I made... Tell me about it. Tell me. How much did you make? Well, it was an... Count the tongue. Has a cat got your tongue? Get the marbles out of your mouth. Oh, he's gone and lost his marbles. <laughs> but, but anyway... Finding a tax preparer that you trust and that you can ask questions to, I think, is really important. And that one in the skit there, not a good choice for a tax preparer, right? That's right. That's right. Kansas State University Extension tax expert Susie Lata, and she's got a whole lot of advice for you if you are looking for somebody to prepare your taxes. So, Susie, first, what qualities should we look for in a tax preparer? Well, I think you need to find somebody that you can trust, somebody that's credentialed, that um, knows what they're doing. I think it's um, important that, you know, you feel like you can be honest and you feel like the information that they're providing you is correct. Yeah, and we'll let you get a word in edgewise. Now, right about this time every year, there are signs that you see going up, new signs advertising tax help, and storefronts that were vacant last month suddenly become tax preparing centers. Now, these could be legitimate or maybe not. Susie, your advice on that? If they're just a pop-up, if they're not at the location year-round, you know, that might be something I'd be a little skeptical about, or I definitely, if I was going to use that tax preparer to make sure that I find out if something happens in the off-season, you get a letter from the IRS, so in case you have other um, tax questions or finance questions that are related to your taxes. So you have to have somebody that you know is going to be there, is going to be there for a long time, that you feel confident and trust and that they know what they're doing. And she says, don't just pick the first uh, preparer that you run into. Check a few out. You know, maybe ask them some questions, interview them, find out in advance how they charge, um, how much it's going to cost. So choose a tax preparer that you really trust that is definitely going to be there for you in case the IRS finds a problem with your return. A tax preparer can make or break you because you need to know that if you get a letter from the IRS that they're there to defend you in the event that you need an audit or something like that. And Susie says if you are still unsure about which preparer to use, there's one more way that uh, could help you decide. The best advertisement is really word of mouth. And so I encourage people to talk to their friends and neighbors and people that they trust and find out, you know, who they use. Next time, not knowing about tax breaks can break you, maybe. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. 
Today's show is sponsored by the makers of All Grow Compost. It's the perfect amendment for improving your soil's water holding capacity. You can contact your soil health specialist, Tom Fantosi, at 209-312-4016. Sinagro, your partner for a cleaner, greener world. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. Today's specialty crop news brought to you by the Almond Board of California. You can find them online at almonds.com. Chief Scientific Officer for the Almond Board, Josette Lewis, joins us today to talk about uh, one of the many events that the Almond Board puts on and is a part of to uh, help support industry education. And now this next one coming up uh, is focused on pest management. Uh, So, Josette, why don't you walk us through uh, what this event will be covering and uh, what people might expect from attending? Yeah, it's on February 21st at the Modesto Junior College Ag Pavilion, and the focus will be on integrated pest management for the most important pests and diseases of almonds. So we'll cover topics like navel orange worm, hull rot, plant bugs, a very uh, significant emerging problem here in the almond industry from leaf-footed plant bugs to um, stink bugs and other plant bugs that are causing problems both for the grower and the handler. We'll also cover canker and then um, how to understand uh, some practical tips from um, sitting down with your PCA and really looking at uh, how things went over the past year and and what you might tweak for the coming year. Um, And then lastly, a really interesting panel on looking forward at new commercial precision precision technology to help us um, both monitor and uh, control pests in a more precise way. In addition to the talks on each of these different topics, there will also be a trade show. So it's a chance in a smaller forum, really just focused on pest management. If, you're, if you've ever been to the Almond Conference, uh, we have an incredible trade show there. And here's a chance in a more intimate environment to learn from companies that are offering uh, technologies and services and products that can help growers um, in the orchard. And so that's a great opportunity. Plus, it's free to register and there will be a delicious lunch uh, that comes along free with that registration as well. So quite a few um, different topics and subjects there. And uh, people that might be familiar with um, with this event, it was previously known as just the Now Summit, but um, you've got a title change and uh, you're covering a variety of more subjects there. So what was kind of the the thought process to um, revamp this, this summit, as it were? Yeah, well, it's a good uh, opportunity for us to share both Uh, the latest research that is funded by growers through the Almond Board, as well as really to hear from uh, their peers and experts such as PCAs that work in the industry. Um, Naval orange worm remains one of the most important um, and certainly the most costly pest of almonds. So we will definitely have a session on that, but also reflecting um, the uh, diversity of challenges and emerging issues from uh, pests such as plant bugs, as well as changing regulatory environments that we have here in California, as well as in some of our export markets, really kind of bringing all that information together so that growers can um, understand the tools that are available to them, 
hear how they work from their peers and really use that information to make decisions on what they might do differently in their orchard this year um, to control the pests and diseases. Well, very good. And now um, we, we kind of went over some of the topics there that will be discussed. And with with those topics, um, I'm assuming that there's going to be some uh, education units that uh, might be available for this, just because it sounds like you're, you're covering a wide variety of things there. So what might people uh, expect in terms of um, any kind of education units they might be able to glean from the event? Absolutely. So we have applied to the Department of Pesticide Registration for a total of four hours of CEUs. Three and a half of those will be for other topics around integrated pest management and half an hour for laws and regs. So hopefully that not only adds value in terms of the information that uh, growers and PCAs might get out of the day, but also um, helps them check those hours off that they're required to maintain their licenses. So hopefully two benefits. Very good. And now for people that want to uh, maybe take a, a little bit deeper dive into what, what they might expect from this or might want to go ahead and, uh, you know, sign up and, and get their, their name on the list there, where can people go to get um, some more information or to uh, sign up to participate? Yeah, if you go to our website, almonds.com uh, backslash summits, you can find more information. We'll be uploading a agenda pretty soon, and you can go ahead and register there. You also will hear about it through the weekly In the Orchard, and there will be a link to register through that weekly newsletter as well. Well, very good. Josette Lewis from the Almond Board with insights on the upcoming IPM and Naval Orangeworm Summit coming to the Modesto Junior College Ag Pavilion on February 21st. And again, anyone interested in attending can go to almonds.com slash summits. Thanks, Brian, and stay tuned as we'll have more of the day's agriculture news and farm features here on the Agnet News Hour. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search our name of Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet West. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. An upcoming AgTech educational event. With the goal of cultivating the future agriculture workforce with the skills and knowledge needed to navigate emerging on-farm technologies, the California Department of Food and Agriculture has teamed up with Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology for an educational initiative. Ag Tech X Ed Initiative is a statewide effort, and it will be making a stop at the Modesto Junior College for an upcoming summit. This half-day event is dedicated to developing the next generation of tech-savvy agricultural workers. The summit, held February 8th, will be comprised of three panels. Topics include industry issues and skill identification, education and workforce development strategies, as well as current and future workforce needs on the farm. 
Panelists and moderators include Neil Callis of Turlock Fruit Company, Ron Ratto, president of Ratto Bros, Megan Nunez, CEO of Bountiful Ag, and Josette Lewis, the chief science officer for the Almond Board of California. Also, CDFA Secretary Karen Ross will be making a keynote address. Registration is free. To learn more about the event and how to attend, visit WGA.com or pages.agtechxfs.com. Well, some good news in the corn trade here as we move toward the end of the week. United Airlines announcing plans to source ethanol-based jet fuel by the year 2028. That does somewhat offset news from Mexico and the GMO corn import battle. Producer groups hopeful that U.S. and Mexican trade officials can sit at the bargaining table before that import ban would go into effect. We think pressure in the soybean trade starting to look a little bit overdone. USDA will update supply-demand numbers next Wednesday. We see March soybeans holding that 1505 level. November, we think, needs to hold 1348, 1350 here by the end of the week. Next week is the first ever Crop Nutrition Week. We've talked about it before. If You can still sign up if you haven't already at CropNutritionWeek.com. And I'll give you a little insight that you might get a little something special in the mail once you do sign up. It's all free. It's a virtual week of learning, February 6th through the 10th. Again, that is CropNutritionWeek.com. USDA semi-annual cattle inventory report showing most categories down 3 to 4% from a year ago. Replacement heifers were down nearly 6%. Calf crop down nearly a half a million. Yet futures getting no traction. Well, we do see a turnaround, if not today, by tomorrow. I'm Mark Oppold, wishing you a profitable day. The Census of Agriculture deadline is rapidly approaching. The deadline for filling out and returning the 2023 Census of Agriculture is rapidly approaching. Tony Dorn, Chief of the Environmental, Economics, and Demographics Branch of the National Agriculture Statistics Service, says the deadline is just days away. The end date is coming up quickly. The last day to respond is Monday, February 6th, and we appreciate all the farmers and ranchers who have responded so far, and we definitely appreciate everyone to respond by the due date. Our responses are definitely coming in. We are trying to offer as many different ways for farmers and ranchers to respond as possible over the mail, through the web, and anything else, sometimes personal enumerations. We're out there in any way. We'll gladly try to make it as easy as possible for everybody to respond. Dorn says it's extremely important that farmers and ranchers fill out the census. It's the only comprehensive source of county-level agricultural data, and it's conducted once every five years. So it's not very often that there's a measure of county-level agricultural activity across the whole United States. So it's used extensively and throughout the years. It's basically a historic landmark of what's happening in agriculture. And since the last five years, a lot has happened in the economy and agriculture, technology, and all different areas of the world has changed quite a bit. So it's a measure of all those changes really in the impact that agriculture has on the world. So it's very important to measure all that, and it's very important that farmers and ranchers respond. It's a chance for farmers and ranchers to influence the future of ag policy at all levels of government. When farmers and ranchers respond, it's really giving your voice out there as far as how your agricultural activity, how's it doing? And the fact that it's at the county level is really an indication where local policies, local programs, local initiatives, everything that looks at measuring agriculture at the local level looks toward the census of agriculture. 
because it's such a rich data set because everybody wants to know what's happening in agriculture and the rural communities and urban agriculture as well. So there's so many new trends that happen and everybody looks back at the census to find out what's happening at the county level and what's happening across America. He says the agency also keeps farmers' data safe. Every report is, of course, protected by law so that we don't disclose any individual reports in any manner to any government agency or any private industry. And the one thing about our data is that when we release the census, we release it to everybody equally. There's no charge. Nobody has to pay or has a payment or any extra access that isn't available to all the general public. So that's one great thing about our data and the census of agriculture is that it's a service to the public and it's available to everybody free of charge, small farmers, large farmers, or anybody else who wants to look at agriculture has all access to the same data equally at the same time. If you'd like to find out more information, you can visit niss.usda.gov. AFB contributed to that report. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Danielle Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.